postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising a white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here and I want to welcome you back to Cringeology. Actually, you know, I'm welcoming you back to the overall podcast, which is not called Cringeology. Uh, the podcast is The Story Church Podcast and I want to welcome you guys back for another episode. And yes, um, we are doing the Cringeology series and I am now at part six of Cringeology. And if you're tuning in for the first time, Cringeology is basically theology that makes us cringe. Um, and also, if you haven't heard all the previous episodes, you kind of have to because it's difficult to appreciate what I'm saying in this episode if you haven't heard the previous five or six or something like that. Anyways, uh, welcome back, guys. It's uh, good to have you here for this next episode. I'm extremely excited about sharing this one with you guys, um, and I'll dive into that in a moment. But first, I want to give a shout out to the patrons for the Story Church Project. Thank you guys so much. And I know I do this in every episode, um, and you're Guys, as listeners are probably like, oh, does he have to do this in every episode? I kind of don't, but I want to. You know, I want, I want to thank the patrons because they really helped this project to expand and to go into different avenues that it wouldn't be able to go into because, you know, the bottom line is if you create a project online and you open up a Facebook page and you post your project on there, here's the deal, guys. Nobody sees it. Like nobody sees it. And I see a lot of like young guys starting podcasts and um, wanting to get out there and share their ideas with the church or with, with other people. Um, and like, you know, two or three months in, they've, they've quit. And it's not always for the same reasons. But, you know, when I talk to some of them and look at their projects, I see like, you know, they're, they're putting all this heart and soul and sweat into these um, projects and into, these, into this content. And then, you know, they share and it gets like one like from like their cousin, you know, um, or from their mom, right? And so, because the bottom line is, you know, you, you don't just start a project online and then post it on Facebook and the crowds come flooding in, consuming your content. It doesn't work that way. It takes a lot of hard work and maybe someday I'll put together some 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 tips on, you know, for those of you who'd like to start a podcast or a blog on, on how to do that and things I've learned because I've been doing this for years now. Um, but guys, it's a lot of hard work. But even then, like you could put in all the hard work that you want. The bottom line is if you're not paying for your content to be promoted to a broader audience, people are just not going to see it. Um, and that's kind of the bottom line, right? And so having patrons is huge because what that does is it enables a guy like me um, with a family, uh, with one income, which is a pastor's income <laughs> on top of that. Uh, it enables me to say, all right, well, here is some help that the patrons are providing that can allow me to then get the content into a broader audience that would never, ever, ever see the Story Church Project just because that's the way social media is set up. It's set up to hide your stuff um, unless, 
unless you're doing paid advertising. So thank you, patrons. And, and you know, that's not the only thing. It's, it's not just about ads, right? It's also about being able to branch out into different, um, different avenues of the Story Church project, creating more content and, um, and better content. That's really, really helpful when you have patrons. So there's some pretty cool and exciting things coming next year. I want to tell you guys about, there's going to be some changes coming. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk a bit more about that next year, but thank you patrons and a huge shout out to the Haystack. The Haystack is the voice of millennials in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. They focus on life, culture, and theology, and they do some great stuff, guys. So check them out. I'm especially fond of their Odako series, The Wound. If you haven't seen it, so good. So, so good. Uh, so thank you guys. Um, thank you guys over at the Haystack for, for what you guys are doing and also for sponsoring a lowly podcast like the Story Church Project all the way in the other side of the world in Perth, Western Australia. Okay, let's dive into this, guys, because um, that was really long. <laughs> um, now, in this week's blog slash podcast, I, I want to focus on the next item on our list of cringy Adventist beliefs. Uh, and again, this is not theological or doctrinal beliefs that I'm dealing with here, but folk beliefs, things that have crept in through the years. Now, some of you uh, might be wondering, you know, like there's a lot of stuff that you're not covering that's quite cringy in Adventist belief. And, you know, for example, I'm not talking about beliefs like the eternal subordination of the sun with which some Adventists use to bolster the idea of male, male headship, right? That's an idea that has snuck into Adventism in recent decades and has never been a part of our identity or our theological makeup. And um, if you go on the actual blog, there's a link there for an ebook that you can read that talks about the history of male headship and the eternal subordination of the sun sort of stuff and how that crept into Adventism. And that's pretty cringy stuff. And, and I'm not talking about that. And I'm also not talking about specific concepts like, for example, the New World Order, which Advent have rummaged about for decades, especially when they're getting into prophecy. Um, this belief also snuck in to Adventism and it's sabotaged our prophetic message for decades. This whole concept of the new world order, not a part of Adventist eschatology, right? So, and, and I've got a link there for a book by Alan Roish as well, an ebook that you can read to, um, which is titled, is the new world, uh, I think it's titled the new world order part of Adventism. Um, it's like a question, right? Anyways, I butchered that title, but you can get that there. And he shows how like historically it's not a part of our identity of our apocalyptic message. Um, so again, that's another really sort of like cringy, you know, conspiracy theory thing um, that I'm not getting into. And here's the thing, like while these two and other similar beliefs are certainly false and not part of an authentic Adventist theological paradigm, the reason why I'm not addressing them specifically is because I'm focusing more on their root causes. And you got to remember that the Story Church Project is fundamentally about redesigning the local Adventist church for mission. And so I don't want to get too caught up in, in, in theological pontification. Uh, I want to hit at the root causes that, you know, pastors, leaders, etc., can can then use and take into the local churches and, and use some of this content and we can adapt it and and uh, embedder it. Is that is that even a word? Um, improve it. There you go. Uh, and, and and yeah, just be able to take their congregations in a more positive direction. And so uh, for me, I think it's more valuable to deal with root causes than to start picking at all the all the fruits. Um, now, in my opinion, as I've said already, the root of all Adventist cringeology begins at fundamentalist verbal dictation. And then it flows into what we've already explored, frugalism, perfectionism, reclusivism, distinctivism. Today, we're going to talk about cynicism. The next episode is going to be about Eurocentrism. Uh, so in a sense, fundamentalism is this foundation. I want you to sort of picture it, 
this way. There's an image on the blog, but if you're not going to see the blog, just going to picture it this way. Like a, it's like a foundation, a concrete foundation of fundamentalism with the other concepts functioning as pillars. And when a person has this, they then build their entire Adventist theological trajectory with these ideals as the grounds for interpreting scripture. And the result is a version of Adventism that's so detached from real life and repulsively toxic that the mission of the church is effectively killed. And exposing this self-limiting structure that exists among us is part of what must be done in order to heal our church and restore its missional effectiveness. Um, and it's super important, and here's why, because there's this tragic thing that happens when a person is working off of this paradigm, right? Fundamentalism as the foundation, and then they've got these pillars of frugalism and, you know, cynicism and perfectionism, and, and then on top of that is where they build their Adventism. Um, and the tragedy with this is that when a person has this system, this paradigm, uh, it doesn't matter how much you as a pastor or elder or youth leader, it doesn't matter how much you preach about the love of God, the gospel, or anything else, because everything is interpreted through this substrate. Um, and this is because such a person's entire understanding of Adventism, rather than rooted and founded in God's character of love, his desire to be with us, right, the sanctuary, um, and, and his free gift of salvation, it's, it's rooted in this, you know, sort of fundamentalist thing that we've been talking about. Uh, and, and no matter what you say or how you say it, or how much you quote Ellen White or Paul or even Jesus himself, until, until this structure is deconstructed, the person will never be able to fully grasp the heart of God. And as a result, they'll never actually come to reflect his missional heart. And when that person happens to be most of the members in your church and it's bored, <laughs> then you have a church that will never realize its true missional potential. Um, and so if this is ever to take place, this structure that we've been discussing in cringeology, it's got to be exposed and deconstructed and then rebuilt with a biblical balanced foundation of God's heart. So in this week's episode, I want to tackle item number six on our cringeological list. And you will see over and over again how item number six is actually just an outflow of items one through five that we've covered already. Um, and this is the item that I've labeled cynicism. Now, of course, cynicism is a very broad term that can be applied in a lot of different ways. So in our particular context, I'm referring to cynicism like I'm talking specifically about apocalyptic cynicism. All right. So what exactly is apocalyptic cynicism? How does it kill Avenue's mission? And why is it false? Let's find out. And I'm going to start with question number one. What exactly is apocalyptic cynicism? Uh, so in short, Apocalyptic cynicism is the Adventist tendency to view end-time events in a dark, cynical way, with the powers of evil as the central characters in the story rather than the person of Jesus. So when a person attempts to restore the centrality of Jesus in the end-time scenario, those with this more cynical taste view this as watering down the urgency of the warnings Adventists must be given to the world. Uh, so such folk also tend to complain about how pastors no longer preach about the Pope and other deceptions circulating the globe. They tend to be more interested in a rigid faith that focuses on all the evil things happening in the world. And, and they tend to derive a sense of spirituality and preparedness from being in the know of things that everyone else is ignoring. So apocalyptic cynicism goes hand in hand as well with sort of a conspiracy consciousness that seems to find relief in discourses on secret societies and hidden agendas and fueled by corporations, governments, and industries. And um, there doesn't seem to be much of an end to that rabbit hole. Um, now, why is apocalyptic cynicism false? 
And here's where things get tricky. Because identifying why apocalyptic cynicism is false is not as easy as most people imagine it. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons why we still struggle with it. And so what I want to do, um, because this is tricky, is I want to illustrate my point by borrowing from two characters in the 2016 DreamWorks animated film Trolls. Now, I don't know if you've seen the movie Trolls. It's a little cartoon, animated cartoon movie. Um, so if you haven't seen it and you don't want any spoilers, then you're going to have to stop the episode, um, or this episode rather. Um, if you have seen it, then you'll recognize my um, sort of overview. It's just a brief overview. Uh, but here, here's the thing. According to the film's storyline, there are two societies that exist in tension. Uh, so the first is the society of the trolls who happen to be these small, helpless little creatures who live in mushrooms and underground burrows. And they have this irritatingly positive outlook on life, which basically means they sing lots of songs and they have lots of parties. And they're also very colorful, right? Their skin is actually like colorful. Um, the other society is the society of the Bergens. So the Bergens are these hideous creatures who are miserable. And they've come to believe that the only way to experience happiness is to eat a troll. So the Bergens, they never sing, they do not party, and they live in a gloomy, depressing world, not to mention they're, they're like green and they have really bad teeth. So as the story unfolds, we're introduced to two of the main characters in the story. The first is a troll named Poppy, who is full of cheers. She breaks out into spontaneous song throughout the movie, and she loves to host loud and exciting parties with the other trolls. And so Poppy is, Poppy, sorry. <laughs> Poppy is essentially an enthusiast with this hyper-enthusiastic view of life and existence. And you can think of people in church who, who are kind of like that. Now, the second is another troll, the second sort of main character in the storyline. He's another troll who's named Branch. Now, Branch is the only troll in the entire movie who is never happy. He never smiles. He does not like to sing or party, and his skin is not colorful. Uh, despite being a troll, Branch's skin tone is closer to that of the Bergens. It's kind of like this grayish green. Um, instead of being, you know, so it's very different from his fellow trolls who are like pink or purple, like neon, you know, glittery um, colors. So Branch's reasoning goes something like this. And he, here's what I want to focus on, right? Branch's reasoning goes something like this. The Bergens tried to eat us and we ran away in order to survive. And they're still out there. So stop acting so happy and having parties that are going to attract them, right? All the noise and stuff. Um, or else we're going to die. That's Branch's reasoning. Now, Branch's view of life then emerges as the opposite of Poppy's view of life. Branch is cynical and he believes that rather than partying, the trolls should be preparing for the coming Bergen invasion. Um, so consequently, Branch builds himself this underground bunker where he stocks up on supplies and intends to hide when the Bergens inevitably discover when they're hiding, thanks to Poppy and her insanely loud parties, right? Now, when you look at the history of the trolls and how the Bergens nearly exterminated them, uh, exterminated them, it's difficult to not sympathize with Branch. After all, Branch is 100% correct. The Bergens are still out there and the trolls should not be oblivious to this. They need to prepare so that if the Bergens discover them, they are prepared to endure the invasion. So in this sense, Poppy then, Poppy's character comes across as this naive, naive and reckless child who does not recognize the severity of the situation. All her happiness puts the trolls in greater danger because she doesn't listen. So she keeps hosting these loud parties until at last Branch's prediction comes true and the trolls are discovered. 
after which everyone wants to hide in Branch's bunker since no one else was prepared. In the same way, the apocalyptic cynic is right about this. A dark day is coming. A day in which everything we know will be taken away. A day in which the comforts and delights of life will be pretty much no more. An hour of persecution, religio-political intolerance, war, desolation, and angst. And that day, the cynic believes, is being ushered in right now through the geopolitical movements of the age, which the rest of us seem content to ignore. An ignorance which the cynic believes we embrace at our own peril. So for the cynic, speaking of Jesus and his grace and his beauty is irritating because the fact remains that the powers of this world are amassing for a final onslaught and the church is going to be caught like a spoiled child, completely unprepared for the assault to come and unable to endure to the end. And if you know anything about the current political climate and end time events predicted in Revelation, it's clear that the cynic, like Branch, has a good point. And this is why it's tricky to identify um, what's wrong with apocalyptic cynicism. So then, what is wrong with Branch? And what is wrong with apocalyptic cynicism? And the answer is, it's clear. It's, it's definitely tricky because what, what happens is a lot of people, they react to apocalyptic cynicism by throwing away Daniel and Revelation. And, you know, they, they become like Poppy. They want to ignore the dangers. And that doesn't help at all, right? So, so then what, what, what is actually wrong with Branch and what is actually wrong with apocalyptic cynicism? And, and I think the movie leads us there because despite the fact that Branch is right about the coming crisis and the need to be ready for it, what Branch doesn't realize is that he is preparing to survive something that has already consumed him. So it makes no sense to prepare for a coming invasion of hungry Bergens who want to eat you when the Bergens have already eaten you. Maybe not physically, but they've eaten your soul. And maybe this is why Branch's color reflects in the movie reflects the Bergen's skin tone, because in many ways, he's already been consumed by them. He's miserable, just like they are. He's gloomy, just like they are. He's friendless, just like they are. In a sense, he's one of them because they've already devoured him. And so as the film continues, we find out why, right? So one day while singing when he was a little child, Branch drew the attention of a Bergen who, as a result, killed his grandmother, right? He, he ate the grandmother. And from that moment on, Branch was consumed by what one of the film's characters refers to as, and I quote, a total eclipse of the heart, end quote. So basically, Branch had given up. Darkness had won. The rest of his life was a dreary cynicism preparing for a coming catastrophe that he had unwittingly already submitted to. But then as the film reaches its climax and the trolls find themselves in the midst of the very darkness Branch always anticipated, Branch himself actually experiences an epiphany and begins to sing a song of hope. It's the first song he sings in the movie. And he discovers that even in the presence of complete and utter catastrophe, there is one thing that can never be taken away from them. And that's courage. So he starts to sing this song, and one of the lines in the song is, I see your true colors shining through. And he sings... As he, lead, as he leads this despondent and terrified group of trolls to realize that even in the presence of abject evil, they can still shine. Hope is never far away. And 
I would contend that it is in branch, and I know this is just a silly movie, but I think it illustrates my point pretty well. That's in branch that we see why apocalyptic cynicism is false. First, because the one who embraces it has already allowed himself to be overcome by the very enemy that Christ already conquered. And second, because in Jesus there is hope even in the darkest hours. And 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 maybe this is why Isaiah, right? In Isaiah 8, 11 through 13, he says this, and I quote, the Lord has given me a strong warning not to think like everyone else does, he says. Don't call everything a conspiracy like they do, God says. And don't live in dread of what frightens them. Make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He is the one you should fear. He is the one who should make you tremble, end quote. And again, that's Isaiah 8, 11 through 13. Now, Ellen White reflects this reality as well when she writes in Desire of Ages, page 153, we should never give to the world a false impression that Christians are a gloomy, unhappy people. If our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we shall see a compassionate Redeemer and shall catch light from his countenance. Wherever his spirit reigns, there peace abides. And there will be joy also, for there is a calm, holy trust in God. End quote. Now, here's the thing, because I can already hear people asking. So let me just make this clear. Is it important to be aware of things like the coming crisis? Absolutely, of course. Like, I do not knock that one bit. But not to the extent that we forget the coming Christ. There is totally a dark hour coming upon this land. But there's also a bright hour. In fact, the brightest the world has ever seen that will follow in its wake. And we ought never to be despondent, afraid, or overcome by the paranoia of a culture without Christ. Because we have Christ, and he's more than enough. And maybe, like, my favorite statement on this whole issue, um, it also comes from Ellen White in Signs of the Times, March 17, 1887, and it says this, and I quote, The shortness of time is frequently urged as an incentive for seeking righteousness and making Christ our friend. This should not be the great motive with us, for it savors of selfishness. Is it necessary that the terrors of the day of God should be held before us, that we may be compelled to right action through fear? It ought not be so. Jesus is attractive. He is full of love, mercy, and compassion. He proposes to be our friend, to walk with us through all the rough pathways of life. End quote. So my final question um, before we wrap this episode up is how does this belief kill Adventist mission? I'm going to point out three things as I usually do. The first is this, and you might be surprised by this one. How, how, do, how does this belief kill Adventist mission, this apocalyptic cynicism? And here's the first one. It is actually a worldly message. Now, how so? Let me, let me, allow me to explain. Before World War II, the Western world was a whole lot like Poppy, enthusiastic about the future um, and what the future held. And in many people's eyes, science was leading humanity toward a utopia unparalleled in Earth's history. But then World War I, the Great, Depression, the Great Depression, pardon, and of course World War II happened. Um, and in the wake of these immense catastrophes, the world became a whole lot more like Branch. The emerging postmodern sentiment was no longer enthusiastic, but cynical. And dystopia took the place of utopia. You can see it is in popular novels, films, and TV series like The Road, The Hunger Games, and The 100. These are excellent examples of this cynical view of human progress, which depict the complete collapse of the modern age and the arrival of a dark and twisted future. This is very postmodern, right? Now, why am I saying this? Because when Adventists preach a gloomy picture of end-time events, we're essentially mirroring what the culture already believes. So our message is worldly because it is underpinned by the same postmodern cynicism that we're supposed to be calling people out of. 
And no, injecting the second coming of Jesus at the end somewhere does not undo the damage caused by hours and hours spent obsessing over the world and influence of evil. So if Adventists are to be true to our identity and message, we have to give the warning, of course, but our focus must always be God, his kingdom, and the hope that we have in Jesus. Anything less is just worldliness masquerading as prophetic preaching. Uh, number two, how this kills Adventist mission is, bottom line, it's a toxic message, man. Like, and I don't think I need to explain this much, right? Apocalyptic cynicism is toxic. It attracts toxic people who are already cynical and angry. And the more we preach this, the more our church becomes a hub of people who should be at a therapist instead of a revelation seminar. So in short, a toxic message is simply going to attract toxic people until you end up with a toxic church incapable of giving hope to the world because they are, well, toxic. And number three, uh, it forgets what matters most. And here's the bottom line, apocalyptic cynicism, it forgets that what matters the most is the gospel going to the whole world. Jesus was clear, right, in Matthew 24, that the sign of the end is not wars, it's not rumors of wars, it's not earthquakes or famines. He said those are all the beginning of birth pains. They are not the sign of the end. The sign of the end, he says, is the gospel going to the world. And when we obsess over evil's maneuvers at the end of time, our focus moves away from the gospel of Christ and toward the empire of Satan and all his cohorts. And Jesus never said the end will come when the warning about the Pope, Sunday law, and secret societies goes to the whole world. He said the end will come when the gospel of the kingdom, that is the good news of God's kingdom of love, is proclaimed to the whole world. And apocalyptic cynicism damages this focus by turning our eyes toward the intoxicating and addictive narratives of evil. And let me be honest, I used to be into this stuff, man. I used to be into all the conspiracy theories and all this stuff. And it's intoxicating, right? But in the words of John Bradshaw, we become more interested in the coming crisis than in the coming Christ. And this will always damage our capacity to do mission. So then how should Adventists relate to our end time message, right? Like that's a brilliant question because... What are we supposed to do? Throw it away? Do we ignore the uncomfortable realities of religious oppression and intolerance about to sweep over our world? And my answer is, of course not, right? We rage against the systems of injustice. That is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to speak truth to power, to protest and oppose the institutions and narratives that oppress and defraud. But we've got to do it with Christ at the beginning, center, and end of the entire narrative. Because this is going to enable us to present the apocalyptic message with balance and enthusiasm, giving the culture hope and joy in Jesus. In other words, our apocalyptic proclamation must reflect what Branch's character eventually becomes, neither cheesy nor dreary, but strong and encouraging. A message that can look evil and injustice in the eye and declare, we will shine nonetheless. So that's it for today, guys. Um, I hope that that made sense and, um, and that you can get a bit of a better understanding of what the challenges are with in a cynical approach to Daniel, to Revelation, to end time events, and encouraged to live Jesus up in everything that we say, especially in the apocalyptic message. Now, I have a big announcement before I wrap up this episode. And here's the big announcement. I am going on annual leave, um, and I'm gonna be working on some other projects in the background and uh, kind of, um, you know, smell a book in the works. So I want to focus on that um, for the next few weeks and, uh, you know, taking into account the fact that I'm also not going to be writing all day. I'm just probably going to wake up early in the mornings, 
do some writing and then, you know, enjoy some time with the family. So because of that, because I want to focus on that, um, I'm actually going to be the story church project actually as a whole, it's going to be silent for the next four or five weeks, guys. So when I return, I'm going to finish out our chronology series. Um, and then I'll give you some of the other updates that I said, I'm going to give you guys next year, exciting developments. Um, but for the next four or five weeks, the story church prize is not going to be any new content i'm going to be relaxing with the fam enjoying a break and and working on a book um all right i'll tell you guys i'm, I'm, I'm i want to write a book on the book of daniel right we just kind of go through the prophecies and stuff so i've been wanting to do that for some time now i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it or i'm gonna sit down i'm gonna get it done um because you know once once i get busy uh with the churches then it's just not gonna happen so i'm gonna take a little bit of time uh, to do that and and also to just rest and relax so next four to five weeks guys no new content i'll be posting stuff up on the facebook you know old content but nothing new uh so i can relax and also focus on on that book um and then i'll finish cringeology when i get back because the next episode is uh eurocentrism and i know a whole bunch of you are like what in the world is that gonna be about like we're just super curious um so i'll finish that out when i get back but until then, I want to wish you all a super awesome Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you so much for hanging out with me throughout this year, for listening to the episodes, for supporting, for commenting, patrons, you know, um, Haystack, all of you guys. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you. I hope you have an awesome holiday season, and I can't wait uh, to catch up with you guys again next year. All right, take care, and God bless.